the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back, May 4th, 2021. You ever get the sense that people in faculty lounges and fancy colleges use a different language than ordinary people? They come up with a word like Latinx that no one else uses, or they use a phrase like communities of color. I don't know anyone who speaks like that. I don't know anyone who lives in a community of color. I know lots of white and black and brown people, and they all live in neighborhoods. I just quoted Jim Carville, James Carville, the man who knew how to drag the Democratic Party kicking and screaming away from Michael Dukakis and Jesse Jackson leftism in the 1980s and early 1990s. He said this last week. A lot of people seized on this. I'm a little less giddy than some about Carville's quote from last week. And my reason is this. As much as we may tell ourselves when the Democrats use that language, they're going to lose the American people, I'm not sure it's true because so far it doesn't look to be true. It wasn't true in 2008, and it wasn't true in 2012, and it wasn't true evidently in 2020 either. Might it become true again is another question I hope we will be able to answer in the affirmative. My thinking is Donald Trump gave America a holiday from history, a holiday from history in the following sense. We often have wars and battles and military operations in any given presidency, usually in the Middle East. From 2017 to 2021, we did not. We usually think we have to push Israelis to negotiate with Palestinians in order to achieve wider Middle East peace. We did not. We often think we have to pay money, blood money, to terrorist regimes to prevent them from attacking us or using their nuclear energy to build a nuclear weapon. With Donald Trump, we did not. We usually think employment gains against the poverty level, level are stagnant. As the previous two points, Donald Trump proved that thinking wrong as well. We usually think immigration will never be taken on and improved. Again, Donald Trump proved that wrong. We usually think increasing numbers of minority voters will increasingly go to the Democratic Party, and that is wrong. And in all this and more, we could afford the luxury of Donald Trump taking on all the slings and arrows that he did when he was slowly proving conventional wisdom wrong. Insults, impeachments, libel, and slander was the reward. He took that those things on as he took conventional wisdom on. And when you upset tables in the holy church or temple, you will see the most vigorous, if not vitriolic, forms of opposition. We, the citizens, could enjoy peace and prosperity and let the left just caterwaul, if you want, as the train kept moving, the train of normalcy. So the left took a new direction and shut everything down with the exploitation of the China virus. 
including notions of patriotism and love of country, including the communications of ideas and news on social media. And history was, history was pierced, or at least progress was, pierced and halted. And now those sputtering about the things Jim Carville thinks absurd, because they are, such sputterings have something new to them, don't they? They now have power and ubiquity. Once you put ideas in a White House or administration, the power of the White House and administration is to be able to saturate the country and the culture with those ideas. And the country is being saturated by leftist jargon, thought, and critique. And the country may be waking up to it. And it may not like it. It'd be natural, if not forget, forgotten, to understand that conservatives would read what the left is saying. And it'd be natural, if not forgotten, for the Democratic Party to try to dismiss it when warning about socialism. It'd be even more natural for the rest of the non-committal society to ignore our warnings altogether. Why, after all, would Joe the Plumber care about what some professor at Boston University has to say, even if it is literally and unapologetically pro-Marxist? Well, as William Buckley might say, if that professor is taken seriously and serious by those who staff the administration, then the rest of America ought to take that professor seriously as well. And now you see that professor's writings and name Honeycombing U.S. Department of Education documents, rules, and orders. There are two people in the scholarly intellectual community responsible for keeping the narrative of white privilege alive. One of them is Ibram Kendi of Boston University of the U.S. Department of Education I just mentioned, of Karl Marx. As Chris Caldwell wrote of Kendi, Kendi now has four books at or near the top of the bestseller list, including Stamped from the Beginning, which is a history of American racism that won the National Book Award in 2016, and two books on racism for younger readers. Racism is Kendi's thing. His newest, How to Be an Anti-Racist, reappeared at the top of the New York Times bestseller list last summer, having spent several months on the list last fall and winter. For many of the protesters who poured on America's streets in June in the wake of the videotaped killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police, the book, <coughs> the book has been a conceptual roadmap. As the first fires were being lit in Minnesota, Boston University announced it would offer Kendi, 38 years old, the most prestigious tenured chair at its disposal, making him only the second holder of the Andrew W. Mellon Professorship in the Humanities at Boston University. The chair had been vacant since the death of its previous occupant, Ellie Wiesel, who died four years ago. Boston University will also host the Center for Anti-Racist Research, which Kendi founded at American University originally. Think of that. The most eloquent survivor of National Socialism, Wiesel, is being replaced by the mo most prolific writer claiming to defend the ideology of socialism, Ibram Kendi, at the same school. Reminds me of when Elie Wiesel heard Yasser Arafat won the Nobel Peace Prize and said, I'm in the same club as this guy. The anti-racism, of which Kendi is the most trusted exponent, is not just a new name for an old 
precept. It is the political doctrine behind the street demonstrations, the cancelings, the Twitter accounts, the attacks, the boycotts, the statue topplings, the self-denunciations that have all become one big national movement. If practical equality for blacks is the imperative, discriminating on their behalf is going to be necessary, Kendi tells us. Quote, the defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, then it is anti-racist. If discrimination is creating inequity, then it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Close quote. That's Professor Kendi. A lot of things, he says there, that only yesterday seemed like uncontroversial opinions under the terms his book lays out would be crimes against decency. To oppose reparations for slavery to Kendi is racist. To say all lives matter is to put oneself among those beleaguered white racists who can't imagine their lives not being the focus of any movement. To allude to colorblindness or talk of a post-racial Society to black religious freedom or voter idea laws. These are racist things, too, according to Kendi. Even the overarching vision that rallied white liberals to civil rights, which was the belief that blacks could and should assimilate into American society. Well, that's morally suspect to Kendi, too. Assimilation, Kendi announced at the start of the chapter of his most recent book, says, quote, the racist idea that a racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior, close quote, is only encouraged with the talk of non-racism. The idea is racist, Kendi reasons, because it is assumed that out-of-group would be improved by joining the group. Kendi returns to this theme again and again. This is the same professor who said Amy Coney Barrett's adopted child from Heidi, Haiti was an act of colonization. Also racist are those intellectuals and politicians whose explanations lessen in any way the weight of white racism as a cause of inequality, according to Kendi. Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Nathan Glazer are racists, but also Oscar Lewis once considered the hippest of radical anthropologists for describing a culture of poverty and other books. Even Eleanor Holmes Norton, the longtime black congressional delegate from Washington, D.C., is accused of using racist talking points in formulating crime policy. Racist in the sense that they discussed the culture of Washington's urban neighborhoods. Who else is racist to Professor Kendi? Black conservatives. Kendi writes, quote, black people call them Uncle Tom's sellouts, Oreos, puppets, everything but the right thing. Racist. Black people need to do more than revoke their black card, as we call it. We need to paste the racist card to their foreheads for all the world to see, close quote. We shall see if Carville is right that Americans don't go for this stuff, even if colleges do. I think my worry is that if Carville is wrong. What do you think? Will people tire of this? Or is this what they voted for all along and want more of? There is another view, of course, the view of the entirety of Western civilization, basically, 
the view that existed until about 30 years ago. Glenn Lowry, professor at Brown University, represents it today, and I give you him here. He writes, the invocation of systemic racism in political arguments is both a bluff and a bludgeon. When a person says, for example, quote, overrepresentation of black Americans in prison in the United States is due to systemic racism, he is daring the listener to say, no, it's really because there are so many blacks who are breaking the laws. And who would risk responding that way these days? The phrase effectively bullies the listener into silence. Users of the phrase seldom offer any evidence beyond citing a fact about racial disparity while asserting shadowy structural causes that are never fully specified. We're all simply supposed to know how systemic racism abetted by white privilege and furthered by white supremacy conspire to leave blacks lagging behind. American history is rather more subtle and more interesting, though. Such disparities have multiple interacting causes ranging from culture to politics to economics and, yes, to nefarious doings of institutions and individuals who may well have been racist. But acknowledging this complexity is too much nuance for those alleging systemic racism. They ignore the following truth that America has basically achieved equal opportunity in terms of race. We have chased away Jim Crow, not just with laws, but also by widespread social customs, practices, and norms. When Democrats call a Georgia voter integrity law a resurgence of Jim Crow, it is nothing more than a lie. Everybody knows there is no real Jim Crow to be found anywhere in America. The phrase also does a grave disservice to blacks and to the country. Here we are now, well into the 21st century, Our lives are being remade every decade by technology, globalization, communication, innovation, and yet all we seem to hear about is race. My deep suspicion is that these charges of systemic racism have proliferated and grown so hysterical because black people with full citizenship and equal opportunity in the most dynamic country on the earth are failing to measure up. Violent crime is one dimension of this. The disorder and chaos in our family lives is another. Denouncing systemic racism and invoking white supremacy and shouting Black Lives Matter while 8,000 black homicides a year go unmentioned. These are maneuvers of avoidance and blame shifting. The irony is that so many of us decry systemic racism even as we simultaneously demand that this very same system deliver us. So the question... Will America go the way of Ibram Kendi, or will it go the way of Glenn Larry? You tell me. Is America going to tire of this nonsense, or is it just getting started? I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's Hugh Hewitt's favorite uh, romantic song, as I understand it. Why are you in such a good mood over there, Bill? You were all happy and jumping around. What's going on? Well, I've got two tomatoes. On May 25th, we at 960 The Patriot are doing a great event. The day before, Mike Gallagher and I and Andy Biggs are going to go down to the border and do our own fact-finding mission. On May 25th, we're inviting you to join us for an evening of discussion about it called Crisis at the Border and the Progressive Assault on America. You don't want to miss it. We'll be here in Scottsdale for you. Crisis at the Border, May 25th. Mike Gallagher, me, 
Andy Biggs, and perhaps more. But you can go to 960thepatriot.com for all the information and for tickets. I'll be there. It'd be great to see you there, too. One of the uh, this this is kind of interesting. So I've, I've been thinking a lot about what I said in my monologue about James Carville's comments about America not being a faculty lounge, basically, and which way this country is going. Is he right um, or not? Uh, Jim Pinkerton was one of the in-house intellectuals in the first Bush White House in 1989-1990 and writes at Breitbart. And he had a great essay, I mean an important essay, on just what James Carville said in my question. I discovered it after my monologue, after I had these questions, I discovered it. But James will be joining us, James Pinkerton will be joining us a little later in the show to discuss his piece at Breitbart. He said, if wokeness was, he writes, if wokeness was just a matter of words, it's possible that Democrats could change those words. After all, when the word liberal became a negative, he writes, they simply took up a new phrase, progressive, and carried right along. And yet, unfortunately for Democrats, wokeness is more than just wordplay. It's also policy. That is, the same faculty lounges and well-off zip codes that give rise to avant-garde lectures also give rise to radical policies. This is the point I was trying to make. To illustrate, we might consider some of the favorite phrases of the Democrats these days. Structural racism, black lives matter, mass incarceration, transgender, trans women are women, trans men are men, reproductive rights, and yes, in a certain noisy circle, defund the police. We can quickly see that each of these phrases has a policy attached to it. And most often those policies come straight from some faculty lounge or some other equally left-wing lair. And to be even more blunt about it, these words, these policies come straight from the brain of the Democratic Party and deeply held beliefs, of course, are really hard to change. Um, for years, political scientist Zach Goldberg has tracked the ideology of elite opinion-leading Democrats. As he wrote uh, last year, many white Democrats are now far to the left of blacks and Hispanics. Over the past decade, the baseline attitudes expressed by white liberals on racial and social justice questions have become radically more liberal. In one especially telling example of the broader trend, white liberals recently became the only demographic group in America to display a pro-outgroup bias, meaning that among all the different groups surveyed, white liberals were the only one that expressed a preference for other racial and ethnic communities above their own. Yes, you read that right. White leftists and their pro-outgroup bias are literally self-hating, self-loathing. And now we can readily see how that sort of mental malformation would make for unpopular politics. I want to stay with this for a few moments and um, feel, free to, uh, feel free to weigh in yourself. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, uh, 602-508-0960. Bill, you tell me you don't um, memory whole songs, but uh, what happened to that George Strait song about truckers? We still have it? Yeah. Is that in? 
it wasn't memory hold. Jim Pinkerton is coming up, is talking about the problem with wokeness. It's not just an idea. It comes with it. It brings with it a series of policies. And he's quoting a political science who wrote, as woke ideology has accelerated, a growing faction of white liberals have pulled away from the average opinions held by the rest of the coalition of Democratic Party voters, including minorities in the party. The revolution in moral sentiment among this one segment of American voters has led to a cascade of consequences, ranging from changes in the norms and attitudes expressed in media and pop culture to the adoption of new political rhetoric and strategies for the Democratic Party. Indeed, there has been a, cons- a cascade of consequences for Democrats. Um, think about this for a second. Joe Biden was elected to the White House in 2020 precisely because he said he wasn't and distanced himself from the notion of being woke. He said he was different. And yet now that he's in office, the wokesters have taken control. And many of us said he was always woke. He just didn't portray as woke. He was always where the Democratic Party was whether the Democratic Party was segregationist in the 70s or liberal in the 80s or where it is today, he's always been in the center of that. Not much of a trailblazer, more of a follower. But how does all this wokery play out in Peoria? How are the woken policies received in the heartland of America? We can answer that question. Um, Member of Congress, who represents Peoria, Illinois, is Sherry Bustos, a Democrat, and she recently announced her retirement. She was once a rising star in the Democratic Party, admired for being able to win in a mostly red district, and after yet suffering um, a painful collision with wokesters, she was marginalized, and now she's soon to be an ex-lawmaker. The Democrats are the party of one percents. As Carville said, the country increasingly views the Democrats as urban, coastal, and arrogant. The coasts, of course, are where the money is. Thus, we see there's been a political inversion from the old stereotype of the Republican Party as the party of the rich. Today, Democrats are the plutocrats. This inversion trend has been evident for some time. After all, it was back in 2000 that Al Gore couldn't even carry his home state in Tennessee. Yet the decisive hinge came in 2016 with Donald Trump. Although wealthy himself, Trump could make a simple calculation. There are a lot more non-rich people than rich people, so why not side with the non-rich? His message included an attack on the coastal elites. And folks in Ohio and Oklahoma loved him for it. As one shrewd observer wrote, Trump's Trump's genius, of course, has been in stigmatizing the fat cats, turning them into millstones around the necks of his rivals. In the old days, class hostility had benefited Democrats. In the new days, that class anger is now firmly within the Republican Party. It was so far as one has the enemy of corporatism and elitism. Workers, soldiers, first responders, 
homemakers. That's who increasingly make up the Republican Party now. To be sure, the populist turn of the Republican Party is far from complete. Um, <laughs> was it coming right up anyway? Yeah. <laughs> um, and a new Republican economic agenda has taken hold. It's not just disdainful of corporations, but it's also, in fact, hostile to corporate America. Let's talk about that when we come back, this new hostility to corporate America we find in the Republican Party. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you're tired of those big utility bills that you know are going to get worse and worse with power increases coming, Solar Sandy is the way to go if you're thinking about switching to solar. She's the woman who brought integrity back to solar in Arizona, and she's the person who actually figured out how to truly zero out your power bill. It's so important when going solar, you do it the right way, and Solar Sandy has the formula. She is the right way. Read the testimonials on her website at AskSolarSandy.com. They're amazing. and She has a wonderful deal for you. If you sign up now, she'll pay your power bills for one year and your solar panel payments for one year, and you will receive a $1,000 bonus at signing. That's right, $1,000 bonus at signing. No solar panel payments for one year, and she will pay your power bills for your first year. To get started, go to AskSolarSandy.com and let Sandy do the work. Give her a call at 623-850-8229 if you prefer. Or as I say, go to her website, AskSolarSandy.com. Appointments are available in person or via Zoom. You're going to like that woman. One of the hardest working women I know. Good friend, Solar Sandy. AskSolarSandy.com. Talking about this woke ideology and this woke use of language, uh, it dawns on me uh, that you may be seeking uh, some further examples. Uh, we have a real live one. It's actually been on a lot of talk radio over the last day or so. We didn't play it here, though. But, uh, Bill, cue up that that uh, CIA recruitment ad, if you will. You want to know what wokeness is? This is wokeness. This is politically correct wokeness taking over an institution that shouldn't be seen, I don't think, as the Obamacare version of the large psychiatric hospital. And I'm talking about the CIA. Does this sound like the CIA to you or a psychiatric hospital? Listen to this. When I was 17, I quoted Zora Neale Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me in my college application essay. The line that spoke to me stated simply, I am not tragically colored. There is no sorrow dammed up in my soul nor lurking behind my eyes. I do not mind at all. At 17, I had no idea what life would bring, but Sora's sentiment articulated so beautifully how I felt as a daughter of immigrants then and now. Nothing about me was or is tragic. I am perfectly made. I can wax eloquent on complex legal issues in English while also belting Guayaquil de mis amores in Spanish. I can change a diaper with one hand and console a crying toddler with the other. I am a woman of color. I am a mom. I am a cisgender millennial who's been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. 
I am intersectional, but my existence is not a box-checking exercise. I am a walking declaration, a woman whose inflection does not rise at the end of her sentences, suggesting that a question has been asked. I did not sneak into CIA. My employment was not and is not the result of a fluke or slip through the cracks. I earned my way in, and I earned my way up the ranks of this organization. I am educated, qualified, and competent, and sometimes I struggle. I struggle feeling like I could do more, be more to my two sons, and I struggle leaving the office when I feel there's so much more to do. I used to struggle with imposter syndrome, but at 36, I refuse to internalize misguided patriarchal ideas of what a woman can or should be. I am tired of feeling like I'm supposed to apologize for the space I occupy rather than intoxicate people with my effort, my brilliance. I am proud of me, full stop. My parents left everything they knew and loved to expose me to opportunities they never had. Because of them, I stand here today a proud first-generation Latina and officer at CIA. I am unapologetically me. I want you to be unapologetically you, whoever you are. Know your worth. Command your space. Philip Reith, the um, sociologist at the University of Pennsylvania, wrote a book in 1966 called The Triumph of the Therapeutic, where psychologizing and psychoanalyzing and psychiatry would take over morals and religion as the guiding posts for our character. You hear the triumph of the therapeutic here. You don't hear anything about the important work of the CIA or what it's accomplished or what it's meant to the defense of the American idea. No, you hear a lot of I, not as in intelligence, but I as in personal pronoun. A lot of I, I, I. Not a lot of service here. Not a lot of commitment to country here. Uh, You hear of at least two mental disorders from generalized anxiety disorder to I forget what the other one was that she mentioned. It's one I hadn't heard of, but it doesn't matter. I'm not a psych major. Uh, I am a woman of color. I am a cisgender millennial. I am intersectional. I have been diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. On and on, this is to attract people to go to the CIA. Are we looking for every possible misfit we can find in this society? Is that the point? Is that what the CIA is looking to recruit here? Does anyone know what a cisgender millennial is? Well, yes, I suppose cisgender millennials know what that is. I know what it is. You know what it is. I'll tell you what it is. Cisgender, (laughs) until yesterday, simply meant... I am the way I was born, gender-wise. That's all it means. It means my pronouns have never changed. Why we have to call it cis, why we don't just call it the norm, can you imagine? No, can't do that. Can't call it the norm. Can't call it uh, the average, the normal. This is a good way to lose the CIA, and it's a good way to lose to China. This makes me think of... uh, Bill Maher's rant about China being a serious country. How long is it? Probably too long for this. Do you have Bill Maher's rant? China is serious. We are not. China is hiring intelligence officers and intelligent people. China is hiring um, military strategists and military. And we are boasting that in our effort to combat them, 
more concerned about intersectionality, general anxiety disorder, and having people who can tell us that they're cisgender millennials. It's five minutes. It's a little too long for this segment, isn't it? Darn it. Well, enough of uh, enough of the point has been made. I don't need I don't need Bill Maher to make the point that China doesn't talk this way, and it doesn't talk this way for a reason. You know what the reason is? It doesn't think this way. You know why it doesn't think this way? It doesn't think this way because it's thinking about growing, and it's thinking about strength, and it's thinking about defense, and it's thinking about national unity and pride. I hate what China stands for on so many levels as a government. I think the people of China are some of the most imprisoned dissidents unheard from in the world. But I will tell you something. If they are going to be our chief antagonist, or Russia if you prefer, that doesn't think this way either, we better get our thinking straight. We better get our heads straight. Because if you want to fight abnormal, which is what I think communism and Marxism is, you can't fight abnormal with abnormal. You can only fight abnormal with normal, which is what we used to be. It's one thing to um, curse the darkness. It's another to light a candle. Jim Pinkerton, who will be joining us at the top of the next hour, what do Republicans do about wokeness? He lights the candle. The answer seems obvious. If they sense democratic weakness on wokeness, they should keep pressing their anti-woke advantage. And that means standing against crime, standing with police, standing up new laws as needed. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has been working hard to make Florida an Antifa-free zone. To that end, he prodded the Tallahassee legislature to enact a new and comprehensive anti-riot statute. DeSantis's bill had teeth, and so, of course, the woke 1% opposed it fiercely. And yet DeSantis played his cards well, framing the issue as a chief, as a choice between wokesters and rioters on the one hand and law and order on the other. Florida is now a safer place. And so that's the formula for Republicans to follow. If the Democrats are now wielding the power of big money and big culture, then the GOP should play jiu-jitsu. That is, the right should use the left's arrogant strength against itself. To do this, rally the non-woken of all colors into an avowedly anti-woke coalition. Individually, regular folks have almost no power. And yet, solidaristically, they have enormous power, as DeSantis just proved. In response, of course, woke types will say that Republicans are playing the race card, but that's nonsensical because nobody but a crazy likes disorder. Instead, Republicans are playing a class card on behalf of the rainbow of people who uphold the virtues of family, tradition, and normalcy. That's a good platform to attract normal people of all colors, and they are the majority. Wokeism is well-funded and trendy, but the woke 1% are nowhere near a majority. So Republicans should build an anti-woke majority coalition. We do that, the Democrats will have a nightmare. How do you do it? Well, certainly one way would be to coalesce around someone who knows how to fight the woke and win. That's DeSantis, Ron DeSantis. Um, There's talk that Donald Trump may uh, enter again. He said he hasn't made up his mind. There are others as well. But the point is never to give in here. 
and never to think that we might just be a quiet majority here in America. We might just be. And if we can get past our oh-so-careful and our oh-so-petty notions of being liked and disliked by the right editorial boards, we could take on the woke and strangle this noxious ideology in its growth but in its infancy. Jim Pinkerton coming right up. We'll be right back.